Yeah, I'm frozen, exactly. Uh, I just <laughs> trying to shrink it down. <laughs> I do do Zoom meetings most days. This should not be difficult. <laughs> We hear you well, Amelia. So yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe if you just take your your I'm gonna, video I just want to get rid of it because it's very annoying. Yeah, I'm trying to just get down to it. Um, Technology is useful at times, but I'll just do that. <laughs> Sometimes it has its uh, oh, yeah. its uh, discrepancies as well. So <laughs> okay, that should be it. It's just right. a bit slow. Unless you are, uh, we're recording, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Um, so we'll start. So um, welcome to another episode of Bioethics in the Margins. Uh, we have uh, really amazing guests like we always have in our podcast series, uh, Dean, uh, Dr. Uh, David Kuntz. Now, uh, Dr. Kuntz is the uh, Chief Academic Advi Officer and Vice President for Academic Diversity at Hackensack, uh, or for Hackensack Meridian Health, also Professor of Medicine and Senior Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at uh, the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. He's a graduate of Princeton University, SUNY Buffalo School of Medicine, where he received his um, MD degree and Georgian Court University where he received his uh, MBA. Dr. Kuntul's state and national leadership roles in diversity, equity, and inclusion, otherwise known as DEI for short, and graduate medical education. Dr. Kuntz has research and educational interests including pathway programs for students underrepresented in medicine, leadership development, and hypertension and related disorders in underserved populations. Dr. Kuntz has many different recognitions and awards. Uh, just to name a few, uh, he has been recognized as a master educator at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and was the 2019 recipient of the Maurice and Mason Community Service Leader Award from the Edward J. III uh, Excellence in Medicine Foundation. Dr. Kuntz is one of 70 African-American leaders in healthcare to know, listed by Becker's Hospital Review, and another amazing list, one of New Jersey's most influential DEI leaders by um, RO uh, New Jersey in 2021 and in 2022. In 2021 as well, just a couple of years ago, he was named a master of the American College of Physicians, uh, very, very impressive um, accomplishment. Uh, Dr. Kuntz is currently funded by the New Jersey Health Foundation to expand the pipeline program at the School of Medicine to expose students from underserved backgrounds to careers in medicine. So Dr. Kuntz, we are so thrilled uh, to have you with us uh, for our podcast uh, today. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's uh, thrilling to be with you. And uh, um, you read that just like my mother would wanted you to. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, if Mama's good, then then we're good here at Bioethics in the Margins. Absolutely, absolutely. But again, excited to be with you and have this conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, let's dive in. Um, so um, you are a person of um, many different experiences within uh, this uh, vast field of medicine. Uh, what and who influenced you to become a medical doctor? And hopefully we can be on a first name basis. So if I may call you Kirk and please call me David. So yeah, absolutely, whatever your preference. Let's be uh, uh, casual and conversational. So Kirk, I was I was very fortunate. I, I grew up in a healthcare-focused family for several generations. So my maternal grandfather was a chemist, which was unusual for an African-American who was born before the uh, start of the 20th century. And although I didn't know a lot about that, that was something that my mother had great pride in. And my dad was a physician. So uh, I appreciate the importance of exposure because it always seemed that medicine was always open to me as a career choice, although I really wasn't pushed into it. Uh, the fact that I had a scientist and a physician in the family made it seem very, uh, uh, very much a possibility. And that's why I've spent a lot of time in my career trying to expose students who have not had a healthcare professional in their family to make it, to have, to give them that same experience to feel more natural. So uh, it was my dad who was a uh, physician. His, his story very briefly was interesting. He grew up in rural Arkansas. He had really no exposure to the field of medicine. The story goes that uh, uh, when he was a boy, a friend of his broke his leg and he and that friend were on the side of a road in, in rural Arkansas and they were befriended by a, a man in a pickup truck, which in and of itself sounds a little scary, but this was a health issue. And this man drove the two boys to a local hospital where my dad watched the compassion of the physicians to care for his friends. And as an African-American in the 50s, he there were limited opportunities to go to medical school. And so he didn't get in. He applied to the historically black colleges and universities, the, those affiliated medical schools had to do a master's degree, reapplied and finally befriended or sent a kind of a blind letter to one of Arkansas senators and said that he had a desire to become a physician. And this was just when all schools, especially medical schools were getting desegregated. So he was one of, and one of the first African-Americans to attend the University of Arkansas School of Medicine. And that was the way he began his career. So. I was very fortunate to hear these stories and understand his passion. And that's also what fueled me to consider to pursue a career in medicine. Now, thanks for sharing that story about your dad and how that links into your work now, um, trying to, as you say, expose um, underserved populations to the medical field. So how was your experience in medical school? Um, I'm sure you did you yeah. share stories with your dad? Um, unfortunately, no. He uh, and I, this is always a, a kind of a sad part of his amazing story. He uh, became ill when I was graduating from college and developed a chronic debilitating illness that he never recovered from. He lived four more years and then passed away. 
And so that was just when I would have been starting medical school. So he knew of my desire to pursue medicine as a career, but never saw me um, start medical school. Well, I'm really I sorry to hear that. Yeah, but thank you. He lived a, a shorter, but a really impactful life. Uh, medical school was, I think most people would agree, is, is a difficult experience. In the era that I attended, there really wasn't much of a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there wasn't much focus on health equity, things we hopefully will have time to talk about. Nonetheless, it was a very supportive community of students in, in Buffalo. And we did have a, a dean who really focused on students from diverse backgrounds. So I, I suspect she was one of the first deans to have that role. In those days, it was called minority affairs. It was much more focused just on diversity rather than at equity and inclusion. So there were a small number of us, but I had gone to a majority university. So the transition to medical school wasn't that stark in terms of the, the makeup of the students. And as I said, I was fortunate to have confidence because I had a physician in the family. So I entered medical school with a degree of confidence with a similar background in terms of the makeup of the students and the faculty that I had in college. So in a few areas, it was a bit of a transition, but in those kind of bigger ways, it was a, a smoother transition than some of my classmates had. On a national level, do you think that um, there's been progress um, in recent years in recruiting um, physicians of color and medical students of color? Um, and are there any specific demographics where you'd like to see more progress? Yes, so that's a really important question and I need to un unwind it just a little bit. We have seen progress, I would say, in three of four major demographic groups. And those are uh, Hispanic males, Hispanic females, and African-American females. Uh, when I graduated from medical school, now, when I say significant progress, we're still talking about not yet coming close to approaching the demographics in our society. So if we were to say, a, a nice target would be matching the demographics in our population. And I'll take the state of New Jersey where we have maybe 13% African-Americans and 19% Hispanic Latinos. I may be off a little bit. So 30 some odd percent of our population is from those two populations. In terms of practicing physicians and therefore medical students, we have maybe seven or 8% Hispanic Latino physicians and maybe 5% African-Americans, four or 5%. So from that perspective, we, we have a long way to go. And this is a, it's, it's a really important issue. We know that in terms of quality patient care, as we diversify the, the pool of physicians, patient care improves. There, we would like to think that it shouldn't matter uh, who that physician is, if he or she is giving a recommendation to get a vaccine or get treated for pneumonia or whatever it might be. 
it shouldn't matter because the information is 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 the same but in fact it does matter and this is where we get into um, some of the historical issues that many populations have had with the institutions of healthcare, lack of trust, lack of confidence. So, uh, so we need to continue to diversify. The, the biggest crisis is with African-American males. I graduated from uh, college entering medical school in 1981. At that time, we had a small percentage of African-American males who applied and attended medical school. That statistic is largely unchanged today, um, 40 years later. So that, unlike the other three subsets that I mentioned, where there's been pretty steady, although small, but steady in increases in students showing interest, applying, and graduating, the numbers have been relatively flat for African-American males. And one of the things I've learned in terms of pipeline programs is we need to start very, very early with African-American males because we use the terminology leaky pipeline. They leak out of the pipeline at a very young age. They don't see role models. They don't see that opportunity to become a physician. And more so than the other three groups, they just leave the pipeline and so many are talented, creative, would make great physicians or other healthcare professionals. But this combination of not having role models and not having positive uh, feedback from, from teachers, perhaps, are contributing factors. So we have a long way to go. One of the things, and it's important to, to have these pipeline programs and start them at early ages and stick with them, realizing that the fruit of the labor may be five or 10 years down the road. Right now, for lots of healthcare professions, whether it's pharmacy or medicine or nursing or social work or any of the myriad of fields, we're all competing for a very small pool of people. So if I'm successful at my medical school, I may have uh, taken a student who otherwise would have gone to another medical school. So we're so the way to really tackle this is for all health profession schools to develop programs where we're increasing the population of available students, increasing the pipeline, not just taking the person who's out there because that's not going to really increase the total pool of uh, prospective future physicians or other healthcare professions. Yeah, um, absolutely. And of course, you know, representation um, is for most everything, because if you see someone that looks like you doing a particular uh, profession, then you have it in your mind, oh, I could do that too. Um, you know, and it, it, it is very profound. Um, just to go a little bit deeper into, I guess, uh, the pipeline programs, um, what, what specifically you think um, we could do to strengthen uh, pipeline programs uh, throughout the country. And I know you, I didn't specifically mention an age, but how early, especially for um, Black boys, African-American yep. males, yep. how early do you suggest, based off of your experience, 
we need to start um, curtailing the idea, hey, this might be a, a track that you'd like to be um, into as an adult? It, it's a great question, um, Kirk. Probably, the answer is probably middle school or even elementary school. From a practical standpoint, it's, it's very challenging to do. Um, you, you, and, and you're not tra you're not really putting programs in place to, if you will, produce physicians. Your, your, your goal should be if our high school graduation rate is X, by putting in a program where students learn about various professions, learn about the joys of being in a profession, learn about the, uh, the commitment to being a profession, maybe we will increase that high school graduation rate or the number of students who, who attend college, the number of students who graduate from college. To, to say, we want this group of seven-year-olds to become physicians, a couple might with these programs, but I think the, the goal should be more along the lines of what I described. At our medical school right now, we're still at the high school level with our summer six-week summer pipeline programs and we also have a programs that we run in the winter for college students so that that is another opportunity actually i don't want to get away from your question but uh, sometimes there are students who graduate from college and at that stage consider a career in medicine they may not have had all the prerequisites they may have had a first career so uh, or, or during college they started thinking about a career in healthcare in the middle of college. So, so we also run programs for that larger, that older group that's that's reconsidering a career. Maybe they worked as an EMT or as a medical scribe and say, now I'd like to consider medicine. So it's not only the, the younger kids. There is a opportunity to put programs together for, if you will, older older people, but not really old. So the, it's hard to say there's an absolute proven best practice, but if there was, it would be programs that start in elementary school or middle school that have a continuation uh, for those students. So they, uh, they're exposed to role models, they get some sense of the, the enthusiasm of science. And then in our program, we also focus on things like how to write a resume. Do you understand financial aid? Do you understand basic concept of test taking? In younger schools, younger grades, you want to tell them about the joys of math. So there are lots of different elements to tackle. We, in our program, over time, we're going to move into younger age groups and uh, track them to be able to document that, in fact, by putting these programs in place, uh, we're more successful. And there is evidence around the country that those more established programs where you do start uh, with uh, a younger age groups, you do see those metrics of higher graduation rates, higher college enrollment, and with the focus on healthcare, uh, more students pursuing healthcare careers than if that program were not in place. So, um... So thank you. Uh, so it sounds like there needs to be not just more investment, not just to throw money at it, but also just support 
um, also bringing, especially at the you know, K through 12 levels, bringing parents and um, making them aware of, you know, such programs that exist because a lot of a lot of parents don't know. Um, right. So, of course, marketing and advertising, maybe uh, because uh, Gen Zers, those are the folks that um, we're dealing with through K through 12, um, you know, more social media campaigns like TikTok, things of that nature, just to be more creative and spreading the word and encouraging and saying, hey, uh, yeah, social being a social media influencer is okay, but um, there's other trajectories that you could go throughout life to be successful. Um, Absolutely, so- I appreciate your mention. If I could just jump in, I appreciate your mentioning her parents and teachers, and, and they are those are important. If the parents don't believe that that young boy has the opportunity to pursue healthcare, he or she, he's not going to get that. Um, push at home. If the teacher who himself or herself may not really see many physicians of color, they may not believe that it's something that is worthwhile for that student to pursue. So those are, those are, it's really important. We can put on programs to enthuse a student, but if they go home or they go to school the next day and those parents are really discouraging those teachers are really discouraging, they'll feel like they're wasting their time and can go on and do something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, before we transition into health inequities, because I know this is a very um, important, um, uh, actually a call for you, um, and that's why you do the work you do. Um, I'm, I'm curious about um, your, your experience being um, a black male uh, navigating, um, you know, and it's, you know, quant- you know, qu- quantitatively speaking, it's no surprise, a dominantly white space like yeah. medicine. Yeah. Um, how um, does one navigate through that, dealing with, uh, you know, patients, uh, dealing with other colleagues? Because um, I know previously you mentioned that you um, had the amazing grandfather who broke a lot of boundaries, especially um, in the early uh, 20th, uh, mid 20th century, and you have that exposure, um, but many kids don't. Um, so I- I'm just curious, how do you, how do you, did you in the past, but even currently now, being at um, a level of experience and in, in status and stature, navigate the medical field? So I've definitely had, uh, I-, I would say, experiences that other Black physicians have had Kind of common experiences of being perceived as uh, less qualified, um, seeing a patient in a hospital, and after interviewing them, uh, the patient looks at me and says, okay, so when's the real doctor going to come in? Uh, hmm. Working with younger white colleagues, when I'm the senior physician and they're at other levels of their of their training and the patient immediately looks around me and speaks to one of their other physicians, the other people in the room, assuming they're the lead physician. So I've had those experiences, especially earlier in my career. And and they they are uh, difficult to deal with and they're challenging and it makes you question your decision. Uh, up until recently, I think there wasn't a lot of awareness of how to deal with these types of microaggressions. 
implicit biases, even in some cases, more explicit biases. And so this is some of the work I do now uh, to educate our, our community in our health system, because sometimes these slights can even come from a colleague, another student, a nurse. It's not just from a patient. So in the environment of medicine, in the culture of healthcare, we need to be talking about uh, these issues. I, I make the point, again, it's not just about, although it's really important to make that colleague feel good and not have them feel disconnected, but it impacts patient care. I, I show a, a slide when I talk to people of a circle of, of people and one person kind of outside of that circle with his head down, not listening, not engaged. And what if that's the person assigned to you as a patient and they're exposed to this culture? So that's going to negatively impact patient care, which is what we're all in here to excel in. So it's it's still a problem, if you will. I think it's more subtle. Uh, it, it's challenging for our underrepresented students. And we need to be talking about it. We need to be uh, talking about how to be allies for students. We need to help students build resilience. But it's 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 an issue. It's probably a little different than it was a generation ago, but it's still present. Absolutely. And and my and I know this is like my second to last follow-up question before Millia times uh, times in, but it's really important because um your your lived experience is important because because there's so few um black male medical doctors you that sometimes unfortunately gets overlooked or it's in the dark so your voice on this is extremely important um what can medical schools at uh you know nationally what can they do curriculum wise um, um and this is where bioethics but also um, as you know I'm, I'm a medical humanist so how can yes. that um, not so much of the quantitative, because we know the doctors know their biology, their science, their technology, all of that they know. But the the qualitative dynamic, the, the soft skills, understanding that you're dealing with the human body, but you're also dealing with the human being as well, regardless. Uh, and, and because of that, it brings an array of lived experiences, whether your patient is a woman, whether your fellow colleague is a woman of color. You know, there's so many... Um, intersections, and this is where intersectionality comes into play as well. Uh, what can um, we do, in a, a, you think, at a curriculum level to help, um, I don't say solve it because it's part of the human condition, especially in our country, but um, help try to alleviate that and bring more awareness of microaggressions and implicit biases and all the things that are basically being human, right? Um, it's part of the society and the things that we've inherited um, since America has been, you know, in, in its exception. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? So great, great question. Let me give you a couple of examples, because I think we can talk about a lot of things. Uh, first is kind of going back to the same diverse representation we were talking about earlier in terms of physicians in medical schools. So ensuring that that leadership team of that medical school is diverse, which will not only help the minority students, the students who we refer to as underrepresented in medicine, but is an important statement to all students. So ensuring that 
the leadership team is diverse. And that is challenging because many of these individuals are physicians. And we've already talked about the low representation of physicians in medicine, but that's one thing that schools can do. Two, and every medical school has a dean who is rep who represents it, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but that's not enough. It has to be a mission that is internalized, I think, by all leaders in medical school. So we talk about this at our dean's cabinet regularly. We talk about these topics with our department chairs. And the theme is, while I'm responsible, if, if you will, on paper, all of us have a responsibility to advance DEI. Third is training. You, you can't, you know, we all have to take this so seriously. So if we're learning about quality, we're all gonna learn from a quality expert. If we're gonna learn about basic science, we're gonna learn about a basic science here. If we're gonna take DEI seriously, we are going to learn about DEI. We're gonna also, from an extension, we're gonna learn how to do holistic interviews. So we understand that students from diverse backgrounds may not have, have this, didn't have the same lived experience. They didn't have the opportunity perhaps to have a semester abroad in college, but they took care of two younger siblings and showed the same type of leadership that that student who had the opportunity to go abroad did. So whether we're recruiting medical students or senior administrators or faculty, having the understanding holistic interviews, understanding how to assess lived experiences that bring strength, although it may be a little atypical. So these are some examples of the things that we do in, in the field to, to have a culture that is ready to and willing and excited to accept individuals who are different, to appreciate that diversity of thought advances scientific and healthcare uh, businesses or those professions. So it's not just about a, a nice diverse looking poster of people. It's a, when we bring in diversity and we let them ex ex express their diverse background in terms of ideas and thoughts, we have stronger teams and our business is healthcare. So we're gonna provide better healthcare. My last comment is it's bottom up and it's top down. And if you don't have top down, then people will at some point say, is there really a desire to move the needle? So in our, in our system, we hear regularly from the Dean of our school, we hear regularly from the president and CEO of the health network, how important these initiatives are. And that's really important to move the needle and for people to take these initiatives very seriously. Great, thank you for, for noting that. Um, so just switching gears a bit, I know you've done also a lot of work around health disparities um, among underrepresented populations around uh, hypertension and other chronic illnesses. So can you speak a little bit about that? that I part? would appreciate that, uh, Amelia, thank you. So if I'm sitting with a, a group of, let's say medical students, so they can be nursing students, but, and I ask them the question, why do you think some conditions are more prevalent in minority populations? And 
it, it's, you know, you get all sorts of different answers, but many times the underlying answer is, well, maybe those patients don't care enough about their health, or maybe those patients don't know as much about their health. And I say, well, do you think people really want to suffer the consequences of poorly treated high blood pressure and have strokes in their community and all of that? And I say, no, sometimes it might be education. You're right. Uh, but it's a lot more, it's structural issues that individual populations have had to deal with. So teaching what we call social determinants of health is, is very important. It's as important as teaching about the anatomy of, of a person. Having students understand the legacy of racism that we continue to deal with and how that impacts uh, individuals' uh, willingness to come in for care. Having people understand even something that's out, out of the healthcare field, like redline, and how a system that started in the 30s or 40s still has an impact on uh, lack of access to quality healthcare in many communities or not having pharmacies where people can fill a prescription. So I know this is this could potentially be political and I'm not trying to go there, but these are very real issues uh, to, to talk about. It, it sometimes can make people feel uncomfortable. That's not the point. The point is to talk about some of the legacy because it impacts on uh, access to healthcare, it impacts rates of disease. And if we don't understand that, we can't uh, come up with solutions. So we do focus throughout our medical education, and this is different than in my era when I went to medical school on social determinants of health. And we continue that thread of thought, those discussions as students graduate. Oh, no. Oh, he's back. I'm back. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure when, oh, okay. when I dropped out, uh, I'll just quickly summarize that we teach social determinants of health. Um, and uh, many of these are structural issues. And it's important to weave that into the curriculum. Um, and last comment, which is exciting. Many students are learning about these topics in college. So there is an awareness as they come into the healthcare professional fields. Do you think the medical community has um, responded to what we've seen during COVID and has acted appropriately to try and improve things as we go forward? I, I, I think that yes, I, I'm gonna say yes, but, and the but is, if we were to repeat this podcast in three years or five years or 10 years, will the efforts that have been taken place since the pandemic, when there was a great awareness of social inequity, will the same programs be in place in the future? Or will, will there be a distraction to something else? I, I think that's the question. Today, there is, a, there is a great focus on social determinants of health. I, I, I'm, I've been very encouraged. Many of us knew about these issues well before the pandemic, but the pandemic certainly brought these issues into focus. 
uh, I think the question is, will the efforts continue or will there be a, a, a fall off? One of the other components of this is how the structure of healthcare. What I mean by that is more and more the equation of how physicians and hospitals and health systems are reimbursed is around caring for a population. It's not so much about the individual patient. So a health system, I'll give an example, might receive several million dollars from a payer to care for a population. And within that population are all sorts of patients, rich, poor, black, white, English speaking, non-English speaking, disabled, not disabled, et cetera, et cetera. So there will then be a motivation to ensure that you're providing services to meet the needs of all of those populations so that you provide better care to everybody. It's not in your economic interest to do things, if you will, the same old way, not invest in translators, giving an example. But within your population, you have a large percentage of non-English speaking patients. And if you want them to feel engaged and connected and follow your recommendations and see providers and all of that, you're gonna need to invest in translators. So the, the way the payers are, are changing I'm hopeful that there's kind of this almost behind the scenes economic push to encourage organizations to do the right thing. I'll put it like that. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because my area of interest is, is language barriers and impact on care. But um, just to go back then, because that's also been one of my frustrations is I feel a lot of institutions talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it doesn't necessarily include patients. Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, institutions, are there any practical um, sort of ways that you, you've talked about? I think this is the policy that you mentioned just now is um, trying to push health equity. Um, and it's sort of, as you say, trying to make institutions do the right thing because I think it's sort of a quality type of metric. We probably need to edit the split of the podcast. It is. In fact, that's a really, so a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. To your last point, yes, it is a quality metric. It will be kind of included in the formula to ensure that uh, all patients uh, are benefiting from what that hospital is doing. So if, uh, if one of the metrics that we look at is readmission within 30 days, okay? Mm. You should be caring for your patients in such a way that they're connected from hospital to home or hospital to rehab center, whatever it might be, and they don't have to be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. Well, to, to use your area of interest, language services, if you have a subset of your patients who are not connected well to the next level of care, to an out, outside physician, um, that, that, that Spanish speaking patient, using an example is not connect. You don't have an investment in language services that is satisfactory or Spanish speaking providers that patient one will probably be less satisfied with his or her care. So that will be a negative impact on their hospital experience. People who've been hospitalized or 
know they receive a survey. So unless you're paying attention to that and making an investment, those metrics aren't going to be very good. And that patient's more likely to be readmitted. Hmm. So there, I think, I think your point is right. Not every hospital has made the same level of investment yet, but I think that they will soon realize that they, their bottom line will be affected. And sometimes that old adage, we know, follow the money. Hmm. So once there is this realization that, Hey, there's a subgroup of our patients that on our surveys really looks to be less satisfied. And there's a subset of our quality measures of patients who are getting readmitted at a much greater rate. At some point, that type of data will flow up and say, we need to make the investment. And I think the smarter systems are making those investments early, understanding this and putting people and programs in place today. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that all of this falls under um, policy, whether it's uh, policy at the local, state, federal level, whether it's policies of just overall uh, medical institutions, um, academic medical institutions as well, as well as um, clinical um, institutions and places of care. And with that, and this is, I know, um, and you did mention this previously about not trying to be too political, um, but I do have to ask you the question now, um, on uh, national and state levels, local levels, whatever areas or jurisdictions, uh, do you think medical doctors should be more involved in the politics of health you know, regarding policy law decisions? Because to the general public, um, there are a lot of individuals, politicians, but specifically at all levels, who might not have a background in health, a background in medicine, but yet their decisions impact the health and overall livelihood and well-being of millions of people. So, um, so I'll stop there because again, this could be a whole nother uh, bioethics in the margins um, episode. But what are your thoughts on medical doctors being more involved um, in, in the politics of health? or even further, uh, uh, medical institutions being involved in the politics of health? So uh, the short answer is yes, I, I agree with you. I think that not even limiting this to perhaps underrepresented patients, that, that we have an obligation to all of our patients and we should be that voice to advocate for our patients. We teach uh, advocacy. We encourage advocacy, even beginning with medical students. And we want them to understand that while it may not technically be part of their jobs, that there is a, a huge importance. We, we advocate individually for patients. We pick up the phone and we call an insurance company and say, Our, my patient needs this medication and here's why. Uh, we advocate if a patient needs to see a specialist and I need to navigate that doctor's office and say, I really need you to come in and see my patient. So we do a lot of advocacy on the individual level, but we need to advocate. I agree with you, Ashley. Let me give one example. It is a political example. There's probably been no greater uh, program in the last 
since 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 the since Medicare that has improved health than the Affordable Care Act. We saw this. Now we don't have universal health care, but we have many more people who have access to a primary care doctor, who uh, have less fear of going into bankruptcy if they show up in an emergency room. Huge benefits if you look at um, number of people insured and in the last few years starting to look at outcomes because people, more people have access to primary care. Don't wait until the last minute to go to an emergency room with an advanced pneumonia and go to a doctor because they have an insurance card and get an oral antibiotic for a few days for the bronchitis before it gets worse. So advocating for more insurance is a basic example of the voice of the physician could be very powerful. And it's a, it's a great example of, of how people, all people, but disproportionately lower income people, people of color, there's been a measurable improvement in health status. And I think we could therefore look at other examples, drug pricing, you know, lots, there are lots of opportunities to advocate uh, for patients. And I think we need to encourage physicians to take advantage of the platform that they have to do so for the best interests of their patients. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the uh, medical field, um, you know, specifically, and again, this is my personal opinion, like the AMA, um, and other organizations, and I know there's a plethora of doctors who swing left, swing right, um, the diversity of um, politics and their convictions within politics. Um, however, I think because there are there's no divide between law and health, right, um, pretty much so policies and legislations can harm Collective, collective health or could actually improve collective health, like you mentioned with uh, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, right? Obamacare, um, absolutely. Yeah, which, um, um, which has helped, um, you know, metrically speaking, individuals who otherwise would not have health care to have some type of coverage to help alleviate or not worsen um, conditions or hasten one's death because of that. So uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, any other uh, final questions or comments, Amelia? No, this has been great. Um, I'm looking at my sheet. Um, anything else you'd like to say, David, that we didn't cover? Well, uh, first of all, let me thank you again for covering this important topic. I, I think uh, it, it's been a pleasure, and these have been smart questions, and I've really enjoyed this this conversation. I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we will still be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and its importance in healthcare and the education of future physicians in five and 10 years. I am hopeful that we will increase the uh, diversity of healthcare professionals. I, I'm, I'm also realistic. I, we're not gonna necessarily match the diversity of our population. I'm hopeful that we'll continue and expand 
educating all physicians about, um, if you will, culture and uh, how to be successful caring for all of their patients and learning about different cultures. I'm hopeful that we will have more material that uh, is available for patients and their families that recognizes different uh, levels of education. There are so-called low literacy or low digital literacy uh, situations where if we have more awareness as healthcare professionals, we can provide information at the right level of, of education or if English is a second language. So a lot of this is building awareness, um, having leadership from top down, and all of these initiatives will improve health outcomes. So some of it's still gonna be follow the money. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Uh, some of this is gonna be curriculum. Uh, some of it's gonna be a commitment to recruit, recruiting individuals uh, who are from diverse backgrounds will strengthen teams. So a few challenges and bumps in the road going forward, but overall, I'm hopeful and optimistic. So hopefully you'll invite me back in a few years and I'll tell you about the progress. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have that in recording, so you're obligated when we ask you next time to come back. <laughs> but no, uh, it's been a great pleasure um, speaking with you, David, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank My you pleasure. for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. I tried to join the video at the end, but it was too <laughs> slow still. I, I finally went well. That I got well. my uh, my uh, sweatshirt situation correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>